Okay, we're coming uh, now to look at God's Word. <clears throat> this, this evening we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. That's found on page 838 of your pew Bible. Okay, chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So all, uh, all year in 2019, in the evening service, we've been at least reading the New City Catechism responsively. A lot of times we've been uh, you know, looking at a Bible passage that the, that the catechism is, is based on, and that's been a really, I think it's been a really helpful thing for our community. I think we have uh, learned a lot, and you know, this was basically a new catechism to us, and it's one that's pretty similar to the Heidelberg Catechism, which is something that probably a lot of us know a little bit better, but there are some significant differences, maybe in format or the New City Catechism. There's only 52 questions and answers, so you can look at a question every single week, whereas Heidelberg has you know, several, and there's about, I think there's 129 questions and answers. Um, but what I... You know, reflecting on it as we're getting near the end of the year, what I've realized is how important doctrine is, you know, how important theology is, and to have a strong underpinning of theology for, you know, for our scriptures and for understanding God and who He is and how He relates to us and um, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. I mean, all these aspects, all these. Answers to questions that the scriptures ask us again and again. I think it's, you know, it's, it's always interesting to think about the American church and the really, really tremendous changes that have happened in the last 30 or 40 years with worship style and um, the rise of the non-denominational church and, um, you know, just the way that we do church that's really different than what we would have understood maybe 75 years ago. And I don't, and you know, reaching generations with the gospel, and I don't, I really don't think it's, um, I don't think people fall away from Christianity or decide to walk away from the church because they know too much theology. Um, I think it's that they don't know enough. Um, it's that they didn't go deep enough because theology answers a lot of questions that we have and a lot of doubts that we have and a lot of questions that are just, that are just part of being human that we have. And even the 
reading for tonight, I think, answers a lot of them. And it speaks to a lot of foundational ideas that we have about God, how he works, God's grace, and then the church, the church being unified, this place of love that we can find. Um, Doctrine is really important. And so it's good that we come here and kind of look at more doctrinal sermons and get a little bit deeper with the scripture passages and with some of the catechisms that have been developed over the years. Uh, It reminds me of that. There's a G.K. Chesterton quote that says, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. Uh, I think that's a lot of, uh, of what this is about, and to have a foundation for, uh, for it. So tonight, I'm just going to talk about a couple of ideas that come to us from this text in 2 Thessalonians and that are brought in through the, through the catechism. It's basically about, or what I'll say we have time to look at tonight, because there's a lot of ideas here, are the, is the idea of election and church unity. So, um, election. What is, what is election? Well, it's, we can find a really simple, easy answer in our Bible passage. You know, it, it's just two words. God chose. <laughs> you know, God chose. Or, God, you know, the, the ESV says God, uh, God chooses. Um, the NIV says, from the beginning, God chose you. But that's the, that's the main thrust of it. That's election. Um, I'll read the whole verse so we just remember the context here. We always ought to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you and it said, there's a note there, and this is in the ESV also. God chose you as his first fruits to be saved. And that's, that's the idea of election, that God, it's God's work from the beginning to the end, that people are saved, that we even know Jesus. And it's you know, the idea that it's the first fruits, but also that God makes us holy. This idea that God makes us sanctify. This idea that Paul writes about elsewhere. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And this idea of, of election. You know, would I, would I ever choose God? No, I wouldn't. Could I find God on my own? I don't think I could. I mean, I couldn't. Without the Holy Spirit opening my eyes, how am I going to find God? How am I going to find Christ? And that idea of election, or I think the whole idea of Reformed theology, it's, it's an amazing comfort to people. You know, the word comfort is used twice, just in these few verses. Because the idea of election, it is comforting. I mean, we see that in the Heidelberg Catechism starts with comfort. What is your only comfort? What do you look to? I had a professor in seminary, and when he was a younger man, when he was a teenager, and when he was in his early 20s, he was racked by guilt. He, uh, he didn't know where to turn. There was so much shame in his life. There was so much guilt. There was so much that was hanging um, on to him. And he never felt comfort. <laughs> he never felt safe in church because the church that he was a part of at that time he felt like 
he never knew. Was he really saved? I mean, he just thought about all the ways that he stumbled and all the ways that he fell short, and he just looked at all the bad stuff that he did, and he thought, am I really saved? Am I a Christian, or am I just putting up a front? And God opened his eyes to the truth, the truth of the Bible, the truth of passages like this, the truth of passages all over the place. I was watching a a video a couple weeks ago, and somebody asked, well, where can you find the doctrine of election in the Bible? And the professor, the pastor, he answered Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 4. Um, Well, one one person started answering, well, you know, the typical part, Romans 9, Romans 8, you know, Ephesians 2, all these things. But the other guy interrupted him and said, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. I mean, it's it's all over uh, the place. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. And it is, it's hard to wrap our minds around this. People misunderstand this idea, this biblical idea of election, and they make God out to be this this unjust father. And uh, people have been wrestling with this for a long time. What does this really mean? How does this all work? And so uh, one of the places that they've been wrestling with it is, uh, you know, in the Canons of Dort. This is a 400-year-old document, and I want to read to you what it says before we, we're going to look at uh, another Bible passage as well. But this is what Article 7 says. In the Old Testament, God revealed the secret of his will to a small number. In the New Testament, now without any distinction between peoples, he discloses it to a large number. The reason for this difference must not be ascribed to the greater worth of one nation over another or to a better use of the light of nature, but to the free, good pleasure and undeserved love of God. Therefore, those who receive so much grace, beyond and in spite of all they deserve, ought to acknowledge it with humble and thankful hearts. On the other hand, with the apostle, they ought to adore the severity and justice of God's judgment on the others who do not receive this grace. If you are a follower of Jesus, if he's opened your eyes to who he is and what he's done, then we, we acknowledge it. It's the undeserved love of God to, uh, to reveal himself to us. And we see this, like I said, it's, it's seen all over the Bible, but it's seen really clearly and really specifically in Romans chapter 9. Not only that, this is verse 10, but Rebekah's ch- children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So one, one group 
receives grace and one group receives justice. But nobody receives injustice. And we can't ever say that God is some cruel tyrant. Um, He's the perfect embodiment of love and justice together. That's how God works. More than we can even comprehend. More than we can even wrap our minds around. But that's God's perfect love for us. It's undeserved. Election is, just, election is just another facet. It's another part of God's sovereign grace that he gives to people out of his goodness and out of his love. And it's his work from, it's his work from beginning to end. So that's why the, the New City Catechism can, can say those things, that God chooses and preserves a people. But then it goes on to say, and we can see this in 2 Thessalonians as well, that the church is unified, that the church does, that church does all these things. It's united by faith. We've been seeing that in Galatians, right? That faith working itself out through love is the bottom line. By faith alone, the church comes together. And it does all these things. The catechism lays them out one after the other. We love God. We follow God. We learn from God. We worship God together. That's what it means to be the church. And, and a couple more, we're sent out. We're sent out to proclaim the gospel, the gospel of grace, by what we say and by what we do. And we are the first fruits and the foretaste of the kingdom that's coming. So we're living not according to the kingdom of this world, not according to the kings of this world, but we're living according to the kingdom that's coming. The kingdom that is everlasting. The kingdom that belongs to, to Jesus. And so that means, you know, we, we, we really have one word for that. One word that summarizes all of those things. And I would say it's family. Uh, it's a family. We're, we're brothers and sisters. We're unified by faith. And we, we take care of each other. That's, uh, that's, what, it's, that's what we're called to. So... Let's do a little exercise because it's, it's Advent. It's almost Christmas. And one of the most famous and beloved Christmas movies is It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> what, an, what, a great, what a great movie. It's a Wonderful Life. So if, if uh, you know, maybe you're young, you haven't seen it yet, you don't remember it or whatever, but it's, a, it's the story of, of uh, George Bailey and... He is shown by his guardian angel how different Bedford Falls would be if he was never born because he, he wants to commit suicide and he wishes that he was never born. So his angel goes around and shows him how life would have been different without, without George Bailey. So my question for you is, and I'm going to share a couple anecdotes from my own life, but your, your question for reflection tonight is, what would your life be like without the church? What would your life be like without the body of Christ? Um, not, you know, not even Jesus. That's a whole other question. What would my life be like without Jesus? I mean, that's, that's one thing. But what would your life be like without Jesus' bride, the church, and the, the people that shaped you and the people that pointed you to Jesus and the songs of the church and the scriptures of the church 
and the theology of the church and that the people of the church that, that pastored you, that walked alongside you, that discipled you, that helped you in your new marriage. I mean, just all, all, all sorts of things. The unity of the church, the power of the church to shape our lives. What an incredible community we have in the church. What an incredible family that we have as part of the capital C church, you know, the worldwide church of, of Jesus. Me, personally, um, my closest friendships from the time that I was born have been from the church. So these people that have been in my life for almost 40 years now, that are like my brothers and my sisters, that all came from the church. That all came from living life together and having neighbors that we went to church with and... um, going camping and going on adventures and traveling and going to vacation Bible school and having Sunday school teachers and uh, Christmas pageants and everything that's, that was part of, of growing up in the church. These people that became, to me, you know, my second parents. <laughs> that when I didn't feel like I could talk to my parents about something or didn't want to or I could talk to... Bill and Nancy, I could talk to Dave and Linda, I could reach out to them, especially as a teenager, that they were mentoring me, that they were walking alongside me, that they loved me like their own kids. And they became this source of wisdom in my life. And a lot of that was that we're in the pews together every Sunday, but a lot of it was this was a springboard for life. For, for real life. And so the, the times that we spent around the campfire were significant. The times that we spent doing road trips together, the times that we spent helping each other move, that's the body of Christ. That's the church being the church, doing what the church is supposed to do, which is faith working itself out through love. Um, as I grew up and went to college and got my first job um, at a at a Christian Reformed church in Michigan, people, the church, welcomed me into their, their home. They welcomed me into their life. They welcomed me into their, their supper table every Sunday afternoon. And I was the young bachelor that just went around to this family and this family and this family and got to know people, and they treated me uh, like their son, and they took care of me. And they not only did they fill my belly and tell funny stories, they would send me on my way with you know dinner for that night or for the next night, or just make sure that I was um, taken care of. And that's the reason that I'm in the Christian Reformed Church because I didn't grow up in that. And yep, the pot roast—that's the reason. <laughs> no, the lo- the love, the love that people had, and just the way that they expressed that, and. I was this kid from the Northwest, and that church just welcomed me in, and I wanted to be part of this, and I wanted to do that for, for other people, and I hope that we have. And that was just, that's the first 24 years of my life. I mean, I can't even, t- we don't have time for the last 15 years, but I know that, you know, John and Betty, they would have, if nobody else invited me for, for supper after church, they, they were there, and... Uh, they, they were just amazing. 
And I know that Betty prayed for me a lot, and she prayed for my calling, and she prayed for my ministry, and she prayed that I would meet someone, and a couple months later I met Lily, so that was amazing. And, and where did we meet? We met at church. Um, we met at church. So God working his will out through the church. That's my you know, kind of wonderful life story. That's where my life would be without the church, without these people, um, I just have, I have no idea. I have no clue. And none of us, none of us is really going to know until heaven, <laughs> you know. And who knows if it'll even be important, you know. He- heaven will just be worshiping Jesus. And, but what an incredible thing that the church is, that the people, the people, uh, that we're unified. We're unified by faith and the church is this, it's, it's an incredible community of people that come together. And we, we get to watch Jesus, we get to watch Jesus build his church. And the gates of hell doesn't overcome it. And we get to be in the front lines of that, and we get to uh, be part of it, and we get to watch Jesus do it so that every generation can, can come to know him and be part of what he's doing in the, in the world. And uh, that's grace, right? What an incredible gift that is. That's grace. So, let's pray. God, thank you for the truths of your scripture, for these incredible promises that you, you have chosen us and you have um, made it possible that to be that we can be part of your family your bride the church and help us to live into that identity as a member of it lord not you know not a consumer not a casual participant but a full-fledged member with all that that entails god what an honor and a grace that uh, that you've given to us You've opened our eyes to who you are and to your work on the cross for us. You've made us part of of your family. And I pray that as we spend a little time thinking about that tonight, that that gratitude would well up for us and that thankfulness would well up and that our lives would, uh, would really show that and that we would live out your purposes you know, tonight, this week, and for the rest of the time that you give us on this earth. We ask this in, in, in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.